to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 24, our pandemic special. I'm Daniel Randall, and later you'll be hearing from my co-hosts Ellie Clark and Ed Mustill. Uh, Our producer is Liam McNulty. And this is obviously a very difficult time for lots of people for all sorts of reasons, so the first thing for us to uh, say is to express our solidarity with everyone listening, um, however the crisis is affecting you. Uh, It's been a little while since our last episode for various reasons, um, but we wanted to bring out this special edition, firstly because we know lots of people are stuck at home and might appreciate the listening material, uh, but also because we felt there were some really important kind of class struggle and labour movement arguments that we wanted to um, make relative to what's going on at the moment. Um, In any moment of national crisis, there's a lot of pressure on the labour movement, particularly to adopt a policy of what might be called class collaborationist social peace and to suspend workers' struggles in a spirit of uh, all-in-this-together kind of national unity. Um, We're putting out this episode to make the opposite argument that the class struggle cannot and should not be suspended and in support of workers' struggles that are still very much ongoing. Uh, There'll be three parts to the episode today. Firstly, a kind of rogues gallery of some of the worst attacks that workers are facing at the moment by way of an explanation that the bosses certainly aren't suspending the class struggle from their side. And in fact, many of them are using it as a pretext and an opportunity to attack workers' rights and conditions. Um, Then secondly, we'll have a historical section uh, where we'll be looking at class struggle during the Blitz. Um, And we thought that was a Um, interesting and worthwhile comparison because the Blitz is frequently cited as the key historical touchstone for a moment of that kind of all in this together um, national unity in the face of adversity. And then finally, to end on a positive note, we'll be looking at some examples of gains and concessions for workers that union pressure and workers' action have already brought about in the crisis so far. Um, So without further ado, here's Ellie Clark with part one. Hi guys. So like a lot of other people, I'm currently locked in my flat in London watching this crisis develop for a computer screen. And I guess the first thing I want to express is my sincerest gratitude towards and full solidarity with frontline workers who are keeping this country running every day, be they NHS staff, supermarket workers, delivery drivers or cleaners, to name but a few. One thing this pandemic has brought into sharp focus is exactly how important the working class are to society. We hold the real power, we keep the wheels turning. However, this also means that in the coming months, we will be under intense pressure not to behave like labour movement activists or socialists. We will be told to pull together for the common good and put this country above class solidarity. But I'm here today to say that that is bullshit. The boss class hasn't suspended the class struggle. They are more than happy to see us pay for this crisis, both financially and in some cases, literally with our lives, if that's what it takes to protect their profit. Already, we are seeing countless workers being laid off without notice or being forced to work in increasingly dangerous environments. To illustrate this point, I want to give you a quick rundown of some of the top waste man capitalists of COVID-19 so far. 
In first place, we have an old friend of the show, Picture House. As our long-time listeners may remember, Picture House are the same chain of cinemas who saw a wave of strike action take place across their sites in 2016 over paying conditions. In fact, the inspiring industrial action taken by Picture House workers was the topic of our first ever episode. Well, Picture House are back in the press this week with even more cartoonish villainy. This time, they have decided to lay off fast swathes of their workforce without any notice or compensation. Next, we have everybody's favourite billionaire psychopath, Sir Richard Branson. No longer content with just suing our National Health Service. You know, the same one that takes care of us if we get the coronavirus. He has also decided to put all Virgin Atlantic crew on eight weeks unpaid leave, all whilst crying to the government about needing a £7.5 billion public bailout for his airline. Apparently, this unpaid leave stunt was done with the support of the British Airline Pilots Association and Unite the Union, which frankly beggars belief. At the moment, Virgin are trying to spin this as a way of safeguarding jobs, but just for a little perspective, Richard Branson is personally worth $3.8 billion. Virgin Atlantic have 8,500 employees. It would cost $4.2 million to pay all of these employees £500 a week to cover their leave. In total, that's a cost of £34 million for eight weeks. Branson can more than afford to pay these wages. Sodexo have decided to lay off all casual outsourced cleaners at the University of London IOE campus because, you know, sanitation has never been important during a pandemic. To be fair, I have absolutely no idea how the cleaning industry will survive this. But in all seriousness, joking aside, Sodexo have lost absolutely nothing on their cleaning contracts. This move is purely cold, naked profiteering on their part. Over in Scotland, bosses at the Highland Hotel sacked all of their living workers without notice, leaving them jobless, penniless and homeless during the crisis. At least one worker, I would imagine more, is an immigrant who can't even travel home because of restrictions due to the virus. I mean, what can you really say about a move like this other than absolutely fuck you, you complete and utter fucking pond scum? And finally... Never one to be outdone, we have Weatherspoons boss Tim Martin, or as I like to call him, Mr. Weatherspoons. You know, the one who looks like Father Jack if someone put Father Jack for a car wash. Well, that rent-a-gob for the idiot rich has been in overdrive recently. Firstly, refusing to shut his pubs because apparently corona doesn't spread in the pub? Then saying closing pubs is a bad idea because apparently herd immunity is the way forward for the UK. More troubling, though, than his pound shop epidemiology is the fact that he still refuses to pay his workers a living wage or full sick pay, despite the fact they are being forced to self-isolate by the government. Today, he even went as far as posting a video telling Weatherspoon's workers to get a job in Tesco. As you can see, class war is still raging for the bourgeoisie, no matter how much they like to preach unity. Now, it is true that the government have put in place certain policies that will potentially ease the burden of the virus for the section of the working class. Paying up to 80% of wages for some workers is better than letting us all starve in the street. But let's be really clear, it's not good enough. 
Firstly, 80% of wages is, in reality, a very big pay cut, especially if you're making minimum wage. Not to mention it only covers workers on PAYE. There is nothing for the self-employed, who are often bogusly self-employed to begin with. There is nothing for zero-hours workers, and there are no provisions put in place for workers who have already been laid off. The Tories are trying to calm the waters by offering us piecemeal scraps and telling us it's a free course meal. Unfortunately, instead of pointing this out, the TUC and Unite's General Secretary, Len McCluskey, have instead decided the best course of action is to uncritically support the government and call this a win for the trade union movement. It's not. It's not even close. And this kind of output from our elected Labour movement representatives plays right into the narrative of us all getting along for the common good. Throughout this crisis, the common theme coming from the media and the government has been one of harking back to World War II. Headlines reading, keep calm and carry on. People describing Corona as the biggest peacetime crisis. Endless use of the phrase blitz spirit. Johnson droning on and on about the proud history um, of Britain standing together as a nation to prevail in the face of adversity. But is this version of history actually accurate? What was the Blitz actually like for labour movement activists, socialists and the wider working class? Well, Daniel will be up next telling us about the real Blitz spirit from a working class perspective. Blitz, the Nazi bombing campaign of Britain from 1940 to 1941, is often held up as the key historic touchstone for a moment of national unity in the face of adversity. Blitz spirit is shorthand for self-sacrificing, stoical determination, the same spirit we're being called upon to show now in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. In such moments, we're expected to transcend politics and class conflict, or leave them behind or suspend them as part of that noble, sacrificial effort to further a higher national interest. But while acts of immense sacrifice and social solidarity certainly did take place during the Blitz, the Blitz spirit as a moment of class peace is a myth. Then, just as now, the bosses in the state may have wanted us, the working class, to suspend class struggle, but they continue to wield their own class power and privilege, just as before. In this section of the episode, I'll be looking at some examples of that, taken from The Class War in the Blitz, an excellent essay by the Marxist historian Raymond Chaloner, first published in Workers' Liberty magazine in 1995. Much of what follows are direct quotes from that essay. Chaloner writes, Public protection remained exceedingly inadequate. Despite many building workers being unemployed, few deep underground shelters had been built. Most people either had to make do with a flimsy Anderson shelter, which they dug themselves in the back garden, or crouch beneath kitchen tables. Popular pressure, and an illegal campaign led largely by the left, forced the authorities to keep the tube stations permanently open. Thousands bedded each night on the platforms. Others, less fortunate, spent their nights sleeping under railway arches or in sunken warehouses. One of the most notorious of these was at Tilbury, where up to 14,000 people regularly dossed down. On the Isle of Dogs, an American journalist found 3,000 people with only eight vile-smelling improvised toilets. 
Uh, we can see then that even some of the best known images of Blitz Spirit, such as people sheltering in tube stations, mask a story of struggle, as Chaloner explains how the right to shelter in stations had to be fought for and won via direct action taken against the resistant state authority. A failure by the state to provide safe access to tube stations for shelterers led to the worst civilian disaster of the Blitz, when 173 people were killed attempting to rush into Bethnal Green tube station during a raid. Chaloner writes, It may be that the authorities, opposed to the occupancy of underground shelters anyway, felt no compulsion to make entry easier. Chaloner goes on to explain how the basic experience of the Blitz was very different for the rich. He writes, Britain was a class-divided society. Not everyone had to endure these hardships. The American journalist already mentioned went from the Isle of Dogs to the Dorchester Hotel. There, he discovered that the management had converted the cellars into expensive luxury shelters. Nine peers slept there each night. One of them was Lord Halifax, the foreign secretary. Throughout the night, he stayed well supplied by a waiter with his favourite brand of whisky. Their wives and lady friends tended to frequent part of the subterranean complex that had been turned into a games room. Other wealthy people arranged for their own private shelters to be built. The most expensive belonged to Mrs E.M. Rawcroft, 31-year-old millionaire, the daughter of Sir Edward Wills of Imperial Tobacco. Built in the garden of her mansion at Torbay, Devon, it cost £24,000 and never needed to be used. Costing a small fraction of this, and yet still a sign of gross extravagance, was the Soviet ambassador's refuge from aerial attack, costing a mere £1,600. It aroused the socialist wrath of the new leader, which was a left-wing newspaper at the time. Undiplomatically, the editor reminded readers of Maisky's counter-revolutionary past in Tsarist Russia as a member of the Black Hundreds, of the fact that he only joined the Bolsheviks after the October Revolution had been victorious, and he suggested that Maisky's London shelter symbolised his privileged position that differentiated the Stalinist bureaucracy from the working class, both in Britain and the Soviet Union. Uh, that's, that's the end of that quote there. Um, working class evacuee children were also victims of the indifference and incompetence of the bourgeois state. In 1940, children were evacuated from London to Brighton, which was itself a target for Nazi bombing. Uh, Brighton's chief medical officer, Dr R.D. Worrell, who was uh, also a, a, a socialist activist, uh, published a leaflet denouncing this move and found himself dismissed from his job and fined £1,000. After a bomb hit a Brighton cinema where many evacuee children were watching a matinee, killing several, Worrell was reinstated and the evacuees were sent further afield. Uh, according to Chaloner, and quoting from the essay again, the bombing also served to draw attention to other grievances festering away in British society. Opposed to sexual discrimination, Campbell Stevens, who was a, a socialist member of parliament, a member of the Independent Labour Party, who represented uh, Glasgow Kamlaki, uh, Campbell Stevens complained in parliament about the big difference in compensation awarded to men and women. A man totally disabled by enemy action received 32 shillings and sixpence a week, whereas a woman worker only got 22 shillings and sixpence. Even worse, he argued, was the treatment of the totally disabled housewives and old persons who received nothing whatsoever. In official eyes, they made no economic contribution to society, and hence their loss of limbs merited no compensation. The plight of old people in air aids was liable to be dire. They had never been included in any evacuation plans. 
Yet in air raids, their reduced mobility made it more difficult to reach the security of shelters. Fortunately for many disabled people, they lived in working class areas where a strong community spirit and tradition of mutual help existed. Uh, Kingsley Martin, who writing in the New Statesman at the time, observed how working class victims of the Blitz received far worse treatment than richer victims. Uh, he wrote, people dug out of their shelters in the West End uh, of London, that is, are immediately taken off by taxi to hotels, given hot drinks and warm beds in an underground shelter. So they should be. Some of these people in East London wandered about for 13 hours, having lost all possessions in the world except what they stood up in, and were directed to a series of addresses which involved as much as eight miles of walking before they were cared for. Clearly, this is not a picture of everyone being in it together, and I think there are some clear parallels to our current situation, for example, in terms of the very class-dependent nature of access to resources. Uh, we've seen at least one example of a private healthcare firm selling virus testing kits for hundreds of pounds, you know, a kind of equivalent of wartime profiteering, obviously only accessible to the very rich. Uh, I'm going to finish up now by, by reading quite a long section from Challoner's essay, which discusses some of the working class community organisation and direct action that took place during the Blitz, uh, which I think in terms of its spirit at least, uh, no pun intended, uh, can, can inform uh, some responses today. So Challoner writes, The government was worried about the growth of nests of sedition, bands of angry and disaffected individuals who challenged the basic tenets of capitalist society. In particular, the authorities feared what might happen in air raid shelters, where many huddled together, spending many hours when conversations take place unsupervised as well as uncensored. Long, boring nights in subterranean blackness might drift along dangerous revolutionary lines. The fears were not entirely groundless. People started taking matters into their own hands. In some places, those taking refuge published their own magazines, such as the Hampstead Shelterers Bulletin partly through these publications, but also through discussions with others elsewhere facing the same problems, a network of contacts throughout London grew up. In November 1940, a conference was held. A total of 79 delegates from 50 shelters decided to form the London Underground Station and Shelterers Committee. They elected Harry Ratner, a Trotskyist, as chairman, and Alfie Bass of the Communist Party, later to become well-known on television, as secretary. The committee's immediate task was to protect existing shelters from official incursions. Smarting from the fact that people, by direct action, had illegally occupied underground stations, the authorities gradually wanted to claw them back. They attempted to carry out evictions under the pretext of clearing the passages and stairs. They also sought to re-establish their authority and regain the initiative by settling any disputes between inmates that might arise. Aware that once this outside interference had secured a foothold, there was no saying where it would end, the London Committee set up self-governing local shelter committees where they did not already exist. The inmates themselves democratically formulated the rules. Marshals were elected to enforce them. Order came out of chaos. As what had started out as a random assortment of individuals began to develop a feeling of collective identity and comradeship, they acquired a sense of their own power. People had to be listened to and their demands taken seriously. When they called for improvements to existing shelters, they stuck a responsive chord throughout many parts of society. And that's the end of the quote. Um, like any historical analogy, there are limitations to comparing a situation like the Blitz to the situation we face today of a, of a global pandemic and public health crisis. And I'm not suggesting that we can just directly kind of replicate any of the actions 
um, described there. But I think what looking at this history shows us is that behind the rhetoric of national unity, we find bosses, the rich and the state perpetuating and continuing to profit from inequality and exploitation. Uh, rather than bowing to pressure to silence our demands or suspend our struggles, I think we should take our cue from those such as the London Underground Station and Shelterers Committee and continue to organise, whether that's via mutual aid groups in our communities, demands for safer workplaces, full sick pay and no layoffs at work, or for society-wide political demands like the requisitioning of private hospitals and other industries needed to confront the pandemic. Uh, we'll put a link to Challoner's essay in the episode description. Um, it's strongly recommended reading for anyone interested in history. Um, that's all uh, from me this time. If we've managed to stitch this together properly, I should be handing off to Ed, who's now going to talk about some positive stories of workers' action and victories during the pandemic that we think are good examples of how to take the class struggle forward in this period. So, Ed, over to you. Thanks, Daniel. So, with that in mind, uh, we'll take a look at uh, some of the trade union uh, organised labour responses to the pandemic so far. Um, obviously, it's very, very rapidly moving situation, so by the time this goes up, some of this stuff will almost certainly be out of date and a load of other stuff will have happened. Uh, the international trade union news website laborstart.org does have a dedicated page uh, that uh, is keeping up to date with uh, trade union responses to the pandemic from all around the world so it's well worth uh, checking that out so we've uh, we've had a lot in the news about uh, what the latest government measures are um, the instructions that we all have to follow coverage of various panic buying or profiteering or whatever but we haven't heard very much about how workers have organised against the risk of the pandemic so let's use the next few minutes to uh, redress that balance a little bit so starting in North America in the car industry uh, Ford Motor Company initially ordered its white collar workforce to work from home uh, but required its blue collar workforce its manufacturing workforce to uh, keep coming into the factories clearly factory work involves a lot of close contact and a lot of workers, due to the nature of the work, will already have developed uh, health conditions, including respiratory conditions, over the course of uh, their years working there. So um, rank-and-file members of the United Auto Workers Union, uh, the UAW, demanded a shutdown of the big three car companies uh, in the States and in Canada, um, a shutdown of full pay. Um, initially, top union officials appear to have gone along with the company's intention to keep the plans uh, the plants open uh, with uh, additional sort of health and safety measures like deep cleaning taking place. Uh, workers at a couple of uh, Chrysler plants in Detroit and Ontario uh, staged wildcat walkouts and a rank and file group uh, urging for a shutdown stated that we do not believe the answer to this crisis is another joint programme between high ranking union officials and auto executives where those who are making the decisions on what the proper protocol should be inside the plants will not have to live with the consequences of those decisions. Uh, under pressure, UAW leaders finally demanded a full shutdown. Uh, also in Detroit around the same time, there was a 24-hour uh, uh, wildcat strike by bus drivers, uh, as a result of which they won all of their health and safety demands, including that passengers uh, use the back entrance of buses rather than the front. Um, in Italy, which has been the centre of the outbreak in Europe so far, 
thousands of workers took strike action on the 12th and 13th of March to force an economic shutdown, which the government had kind of ordered, but a lot of employers were uh, saying that they were going to carry on, carry production on. Um, workers uh, walked out strictly at a distance of one metre from each other in line with uh, social distancing guidelines. Um, there was a mammoth 18-hour video conference negotiation between uh, unions and uh, employers uh, and the government, and that resulted in an agreement stipulating various measures that employers must take, um, risking forced closure by uh, the authorities if they didn't follow them. Um, much more remains to be done, of course, in various industries. Uh, Amazon warehouse workers across Europe have pointed out the absurdity of potentially in some countries being arrested for going out of their house except for when they're going to work uh, to a workplace where they're surrounded by hundreds of perhaps thousands of other other people um some have even been doing overtime to meet a surge in demand which obviously is going to increase their exposure uh, at least one amazon distribution center in france has seen a wildcat strike um amazon france is now talking about restricting uh, orders of non-essential goods from the website um, closer to home union responses have been mixed teachers unions were pressuring the government for clarity on school closures before they were finally announced the TUC has welcomed the government's uh, guarantee of um, paying 80% of people's wages as long as an employer chooses of course to uh, to take up the scheme um, it seems like pretty sort of well I mean it, it seems like and it is a pretty unprecedented situation for a Tory government to essentially be stepping into the economy to the tune of paying 80% of everyone's wage but of course 80% of your wage equates also to a 20% wage cut and if you are on minimum wage or low wage then that's like pretty significant um, obviously it avoids people being laid off but it's not as if uh, people are therefore comfortably off and don't have any uh, don't have any money worries as a result um, on a grassroots level from a trade union perspective we've seen uh, some action in this country as well library workers in Lambeth walked out to uh, secure a shutdown of their service uh, outsourced staff employed by ISS at Lewisham Hospital also walked out after the company failed to pay them. Uh, I don't think that was... Well, that was a pre-existing dispute that uh, predates the uh, coronavirus pandemic, but it seems like the uh, the advent of the pandemic might have made that a bit more... Uh, a bit sharper than it otherwise would have been. Um, it's important to know, as I mean, I, I work in the National Health Service in a non-clinical role. Um, obviously, a lot of people are singing the praises of uh, the clinical staff, which, of course, is absolutely right in the in the current situation and, and generally, but it's important to know as well that some of the most important uh, people working in the NHS are some of the lowest paid, and particularly the cleaners. Their exposure to this is massive, and they're always on the bottom of the pay scale. So um, when you're... Uh, when you're cheering on the doctors and nurses don't forget about the uh, the other staff as well um now that we've got in this country effectively a general shutdown at least for a few weeks it looks like the terrain is shifting very quickly so the issues unions will have to fight on are not just going to be health and safety uh, issues but 
the extent to which employers are observing government guidelines, the extent to which employers are avoiding layoffs by applying for this um, 80% scheme. Um, a lot of uh, people, as we know, in the, in the modern economy are technically self-employed but really have very little control over their own economic life. Uh, that's a result of the gig economy and the casualization of a lot of sectors um, and it's still at the time of recording is uh, is very unclear what uh, what significant measures are going to be put in place to help uh, people that are, that are technically self-employed um, so that is another angle that uh, perhaps organized labor has to has to take up as well um, and I think you know based on what we've heard, from Ellie and from Daniel, I think it is wrong, really, for unions to accept that just because we're in a crisis, it means we need to junk our existing disputes and grievances. We need to sort of go along, sort of unquestioningly, with what the government want or what employers want. Um, we always need to be putting forward our own position, our own independent position, and looking after our own members and, and their families. So. Um, from our point of view I think we might well need to be prepared to step up our action um, particularly particularly after the sort of peak of the pandemic has passed and you can bet as, as always happens in a, in a crisis or after a crisis that employers and the state will try and shift once again the burden of, uh, of paying for that crisis uh, onto the working class so it's something that we certainly have to be have to be ready for and we should not therefore get into a uh, mindset of uh, social peace in the meantime um, that's just a, a very very quick overview of, of what's going on obviously it's a very rapidly changing situation um, if any of you do have uh, examples of uh, what yourselves or, or other trade unionists have done in the workplace to sort of uh, safeguard people's health and safety in the last few weeks uh please do let us know get at us on uh, on social media and tell us it's uh, it's really uh, it's really uh, a horrible situation but it is still very inspiring to see uh, the action that people are willing to take um both in the workplace and in uh, communities as well through the sort of network of mutual aid groups that are that are developing um, so with that in mind uh, that's about all we've got time for and um, keep, uh, keep safe and well as much as you possibly can and uh, we'll see you next time thanks for listening Labor Days was presented by Daniel Randall, Ellie Clark and Ed Mustel. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith and the producer was Liam McNulty. Follow us on Twitter at Labor underscore Days and don't forget to rate and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>